Smoky Mountains. That's what I've always wanted to be, but uh, no, he goes all over the United States, uh, other countries, and uh, God is, uh, is uh, I think, using him now more than he ever has uh, to help the body of Christ. And uh, we're going to ask him to come tonight and uh, get you. Bibles out. I told you this morning, get your pencils out, which you can do that if you want to, but we'll have the CD, DVD, and you might get it and listen to it there in your home by yourself. Might get more out of it, but it won't hurt anything to write it down tonight. And uh, But you pray for him tonight and uh, help him to preach. Thank, Thank you, Pastor. Sure appreciate you. And uh, I was fun this morning. I gave I gave Grace a gospel. I gave her two chick tracks, and one of her cohorts that was in there, and, uh, and then found out she was saved. And I I told her to I said, well, you're not a heathen. That guy's probably a heathen, though, isn't he? And he was standing right there listening. <laughs> and she said, he, one of them said, I, I think so. Or so I don't know if you gave her <laughs> if he read anything. But uh, that was very funny to do that. Listen, greatest breakfast in America. Six-inch flatbread, yellow egg, bacon, pepperoni, pepper jack cheese, green peppers and extra onions before it goes into the oven. Comes out, tomatoes, pickles, banana peppers, Jalapeno peppers, salt and pepper, oregano, and the most important thing of all, chipotle sauce, and a hot coffee. <laughs> Every Sunday in America, I deal with looking for subways. Forget the hotel breakfast. Forget about it. And I always have to find one if they got to be open in time for me to eat it and get to Sunday school by 10, and they have to sell breakfast. Sometimes they open, don't sell breakfast. Then half the time they don't have coffee anymore. I got to bring my own coffee in from the hotel or from wherever I'm going. Never mind. That was some pretty singing, wasn't it? You want to see a verse God gave me when they were singing? Uh, I want to show you. It ties in with the message. Turn to Exodus about feet going over that hot sand in the desert, right? You know, I was reading, you know, isn't it great how you read the Bible and the stuff just jumps out at you, right? Boy, that was a great truth in that. And what a pretty song that was. Never heard it before. Good night. Look at this, look at this. We're going to talk about Israel tonight anyway. Uh, Exodus chapter 3 and uh, verse number uh, 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the what? The back side of the desert and came to the mountain of God. You all realize where the mountain of God is? It's on the what? The back side of the desert. Guess what that means? You all want to get to God? Got to do what? Across that desert. That's a rough trip, isn't it? But you make it over there, it's worth it. Amen, Brother Grady. Amen. And up there at verse 5, and, uh, and he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place where thou art standing is holy ground. I remember Dr. Ruckman preaching a sermon on the first time the word holy is found in the Bible. It's right there. 
That's the law of first mention. And the first thing God calls holy in the Bible is a piece of dirt. Ain't that something? Holy Virgin Mary, Holy Father in Rome, the Holy Koran. How many, how many remember Amos and Andy? Holy Mackerel Andy, remember that guy? And yet the first thing God ever calls holy is dirt. Piece of dirt the size of New Jersey today. Don't mess with it, it's a deadly piece of dirt. And that's that painting I have out there in the lobby. It cost me $2,500. It's that painting of the burning bush. And it's a subliminal painting. The artist took a year to do it, charged me $2,500. Uh, um, but he paints Moses' sandals into it. And nobody sees the sandals unless you're looking for it or somebody tells you to look for it right there. And, um, and that's because that's the bush. That's the first major picture of Israel in the Bible, the burning bush, because it uh, burns but never goes out. And uh, so, anyhow, well, turn in your Bibles to, uh, to uh, uh, Romans 11. And I'm, when I was here the last time, I, I would have preached this sermon because I have a new, you know, it's my fifth book that's come out. And I always, I'm not on a book tour, but people expect me to speak on that subject, whatever the latest book is. But the preacher, man, I get requests for messages like some preachers do, but... He's the first guy I can think of that asked for two messages for two services, Sunday morning, Sunday. So I couldn't make any money. I mean, I couldn't sell any books that, uh, that, uh, that day. So uh, anyway, I'm going to bring the message tonight that I would have preached uh, back yonder. Uh, so let's stand for the reading of God's Word. In Romans 11, there's a movement been going around for several years uh, <clears throat> no, uh, promoting a, a Catholic heresy that's known as replacement theology. And all that means is that God replaced Old Testament Israel with the New Testament church age, with the New Testament church, I should say. And all the promises that God made to Abraham about his descendants, especially future land grants, all that in the, the glorious millennium and all these things, all that's canceled out because the Jews rejected his son. That God basically threw a hissy fit, you know, uh, when they, they rejected his son. And they said, forget you, and I'm going to give all the promises to some new group called the church. Now, that's a Catholic teaching. Protestants picked it up at the Reformation. Baptists have kind of kept it at arm's length, except a few Southern Baptist seminaries. But now the, the nutty independent Baptists have started feeding into that because of a nut in uh, Arizona by the name of Stephen Anderson has 11 children, his wife's from Germany, and I don't know why they hate Israel together. I was in Germany in January, I preached a mission, uh, I preached a camp meeting in Dresden, Germany, and did I ever mess up, preacher? Sometimes you just have a bad day. First message, I thought I was going to be cute, I used the Dr. Ruckman deal. I said, all those in favor of gun control, raise your right hand. I mean, half the crowd had heart attacks, the other half jumped out the windows. Nobody told me it was against the law to do the Hitler salute in Germany to this day. But uh, it was crazy. But anyway, this, this cluck has been preaching this stuff for four or five years now. And uh, anyway, he's got a lot of satellite churches popped up believing that the Jews are done with by God and we're the new Israelites. That's what, he's, that's what the congregations are being taught. And they're going to they're they're have to go into the tribulation. There's no pre-trib rapture. No, no Holocaust, all this crazy stuff. And satellite churches popping up every place. Well, that, the Lord took the wind out of that dude's sails this year. He's got three, 
Three, three of his 11 kids are, bo are boys, 18, 19, 20. That's that grinder. Oh, the, the, the Lord, the devil almost used the preacher to destroy the service tonight. I, I, got a six, I got a turkey grinder today, but I always get six inches. He forced a foot-long one on me. I thought to myself, I'll get to the room. I won't eat it. I ate the first half. Then the other half kept calling my name. Said, I'll eat this on the way home tonight, but I put it in the freezer. He kept calling my name through the freezer door. I took it out. Remember Mikey, he eats anything? I eat everything. Oh, I'm suffering already up here. Pray for me. Anyway, God took the sails, the wind out of this, this turkey sails. Three of his uh, near adult age sons are messing around with girls in the church on Facebook and a lot of perverted stuff, and he's real quiet lately. What a cockroach. Wrecking churches. So let's find out if the Apostle Paul ever got any of Stephen Anderson's DVDs about God being done with the Jews. I don't know. Maybe he did. Romans 11.1. 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? Right there is the question. Look at the answer. God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. First thing he says is, if, if God was done with the Jews, how did I get saved? Yeah. Uh, Thirty years later, I'm writing a New, New Testament book. Hey, God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What you not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Now, see, Elijah thought he was the only one. God said, I got 7,000 right over here. So that looks great compared to one, doesn't it? Hello? 7,000 was a drop in the bucket still compared to the millions in the whole nation. The great majority of the Jews didn't want anything to do with the Lord in Elijah's days. So look at the next verse. Even so then at this present time also there is a what? Remnant according to the election of grace. 30 years into the church age, this is, this, this is a Jewish election still like there's always been a Jewish election. See this crazy group. This is my Sammy Allen impersonation. Everybody's still standing for three hours. I didn't want you to think I forgot about you. Ain't that right, Brother Sammy? You know, the idea was God threw, God threw a hissy fit when they rejected a son. Got caught off guard. What, what happened? God didn't take a baby aspirin when they rejected a son. He's been used to it. He's not done with the Jews. Let's pray. Father, we sure do love you and ask you now to bless us real good. And thank you for a good service this morning. And thank you for a good night, a mini gospel concert tonight with spirit-controlled people that could bless the people. My soul. That's beautiful. Lord, just help us now. Lord, we know America, if Trump survives, he's not going to overthrow the whole swamp. And it's just a matter of time. And we're we're waiting to blow out of here, literally. Yes. But, Lord, uh, we know that as that's true, Israel is the only game in town now. So help us tonight as a body to uh, sharpen our insight as to what's happening yes. over in the Middle East, and that may not be too heavy for the people. These are your precious 
sheep. Some of them got two girls over here, at least, that are precious lambs, sheep that are less than a year old. Lovest thou me more than these? Feed my sheep. Thank you for giving me the privilege of feeding the, the, your flock under the leadership of Brother, Brother Prophet. Give us a good service now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Leave your Bibles open there to Romans 11 and jump down to verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. And that description there fits this new emerging crazy crowd of anti-Israel Baptist people that never existed before. By the way, a great picture of what we read this morning, those 20 signs of the last days, one of them is without natural affection. Mothers, is it natural for a mother to kill her own baby? Of course not. Is it natural for a Baptist to hate the Jews? Hello? I was saved in 1974. Everybody was reading Late Great Planet Earth. I couldn't wait to get to Israel. I was in Israel 10 months after I got saved. Free ticket on Air France, first class, amen? Yeah, it was a perk for being in the airline business. But I'm running around. I still had long hair. I didn't know what was happening. 10 months, I'm running around in Israel. Everybody loved the Jews back then. I didn't know one Baptist that didn't love Israel. But unless they be wise in their own conceits. Now, what's this mystery? Something you can't understand. Here's the mystery. Look, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Partial blindness. If it was total blindness, Paul wouldn't have gotten saved. And Brother, Brother Prophet, isn't it interesting, the number one military hero of Israel's uh, uh, history is this guy. Remember him? Yeah, they, sell, they had his eye patch, one of his eye patches on eBay the other day, $50,000. Partial blindness. That Antichrist is going to have one eye. Going to probably be a Jew. Blindness in part has happened to Israel, but look at that next word, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So it looks like Israel is not going to be blinded forever, which is what these nuts are teaching you. And what does that mean to the fullness of the Gentile? Brother, about an hour after, about 30 minutes after I finished that foot-long grinder, I was in trouble, brother. I was so full. <laughs> when that body of Christ gets full, filled up to the last Gentile convert comes into it, boom, out we go. That's the fullness of the Gentiles. Now when that happens, those blinders are going to come off Israel's eyes and they're going to start to see some things, especially when the Antichrist is going to scam them. But keep reading here, verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. Future tense. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now, I got into a phone call debate accidentally with some cluck in Illinois who's one of Stephen Anderson's lieutenants in his anti-Israel group of churches. And this guy's trying to convert me over to hating the Jews. And I was, I was in a parking lot in Flint, Michigan, ready to go into Jimmy John's, which I asked you specifically about by name today. Jersey Mike's, Jimmy John's, you, you know, that's, the, that's where it's at. And, 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 and I wanted to get a turkey, Tom, number four, in the worst way. And this bum's got me tied up in the parking lot trying to make me a, an anti-Jewish Baptist. And I finally said to the guy, I said, man, can't you read? And I quoted verse 26 to him. And so all Israel shall be saved. Duh, can't you read that? And you know what that guy said? He said, well, Brother Grady, I believe that verse. We're Israel. 
We're all going to be saved. Now, you think about, I tried to tell you this morning how spoiled you are in a nice way of telling you that. These congregations all across America now are being told they're, they're tithing, working in nurseries, being faithful in church, and they're being hammered every week that you're the new Israelites, you're the new Israel, and you, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to go into at least two-thirds of the tribulation period. Verse 27, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. That's future. Now, the deal is, you see, it's not replacement theology. It's restoration theology. One day that Jew is going to be restored. Well, it's two parts. He's going to experience physical restoration back to his land. That started in 1948. And then he's going to receive ultimate restoration to his Lord at the end of the second advent. At the second advent, we come racing down here in our wedding dresses, amen, you know, to rescue, watch it, our mother-in-law. You all know that? Israel's our mother-in-law. You know that Israel and Jehovah were married, divorced, and he's good. If God can't use a divorced person, he can't use himself. I mean, he's divorced, but he's going to remarry Israel one day. And we're married to Jehovah's son. That makes Israel our mother-in-law. No more mother-in-law jokes. You know, Jack Howells had a lot of bad mother-in-law jokes. I, I, wouldn't, I would never tell them, but I wouldn't mind spreading them. He said he was at, this guy was at the funeral of his mother-in-law standing in front of his mother-in-law's casket with his wife, and his wife's crying her eyes out. He's just a real stoic, not saying anything. And she said, <laughs> and all of a sudden, he, the husband goes nuts, starts screaming, beating the caskets, yelling, and pulling his hair out of his head. And his wife got so touched, she said, Harold, I didn't think you cared for mother. He said, I thought I saw her move. Anyway, that was Jack Isles. I would never make up jokes like that. Now, I've got several, a uh, couple of hundred Bible verses in that book, by the way, on Israel. And I think the most important verse I have in the book is verse 28. The next verse. You want insight to Israel? This is the key verse, I think. As concerning the gospel, they, Israel, are what? Enemies. Boy, what hate speech is that? Enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are what? Beloved for the father's sakes. Now look at that word fathers there. My wife is a, my proofreader from all my books. And you know, you're married to a proofreader, it can be a pain in the neck. She corrects everything I say wrong 24-7, but she's also a nurse and I get an offsetting bonus there, babies me forever. But I quoted that verse to her the first time incorrectly. I read that to myself and thought it meant beloved for the what? Father's sake. And my wife said, hey, dummy, you know, which she would never say in front of you. But she said, can't you read? All you homeschool moms probably caught it. It's not capital F apostrophe S. It's lowercase f S apostrophe. At father's business isn't God the father. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, fathers, plural sake, the fathers of the nation. And now what you just read in that verse, it's a 37-cent word. And the 37-cent word is a hoity-toity word. That's a conundrum. A conundrum is just a fancy word for a mystery, a riddle, a, like a paradox. You know, you just read there, God just told you that Jew is your beloved enemy. Is that what it says? 
Well, how can somebody be both? Well, I was preaching in Amarillo, Texas, uh, San Antonio, Texas, 20 years ago. Uh, preacher had me sleeping in a brand new RV they just purchased for a missionary, sitting in the church parking lot. And I got in there Saturday night. Everything was fine. I got up on Sunday morning, preached the gospel, and preached all day. Climbed back into my uh, Taj Mahal there. By the way, I love my Holiday Inn Express. What a nice room. Thank you for spoiling me so much legitimately. You all are a tremendous host. And I, I got up the second, I, I was on the phone with my wife Sunday night. And I said, okay, honey, I love you. Good night. And I gave her a little kissy and put the phone down on the little nightstand 18 inches away from my head type thing. You all know what a RV looks, you know, is like. I'm in the back end here. Door right there, back end, bedroom, right? I woke up the next morning to use the potty. I don't know, what, can you, what kind of words can you say in Kentucky? To go TT, you know, I mean, you know, down south, you flip everybody out up north, it don't matter what you say. I don't know, you're a Kentucky, you're a border state. I got up to use the restroom, whatever you're going to say, yeah. 7 o'clock in the morning, and I got out of my little bedroom. The whole place was trashed. I mean, TV gone trashed. My paper's thrown everywhere, my clothes, my cigarettes, everything's thrown all over the place. Uh, Grace, you got a new, uh, this is all showmanship here. I'm trying to hold your attention. Preacher's got a tough job. They asked Spurgeon, what did you do when people fall asleep in church? He said, wake up the preacher, amen. Hey, sit down back there, please. Sit down. Oh, you're pretty sharp. I think only one person looked. I usually, did I do that when I was here last time? Jack Howes taught us that, crowd control. So that guy sort of falling asleep on the back row and the preacher got mad and yelled at the guy sitting next to him, wake that guy up over there. The guy yelled back at him, you put him to sleep, you wake him up. And I got a tough job up here to hold your attention. And uh, so, um, by the way, if I stutter, that, I, that's my Joe Biden impersonation. The Lord told me that two months ago. He said, use that line. I promise you, as God is my witness, I believe God told me to do that. I wouldn't, I promise you. I hope you and God have some fun sometime, you know, but I mean, uh, but I, I ran into, I ran back into my bedroom to call my wife. I couldn't call my, call, uh, call the police. I mean, I couldn't call the police, no cell phone. I went across the street, you know, and where the bulletproof vest gas station was, you know, and, and got the police over there. And 30 minutes later, I'm back at the scene of the crime with the pastor and the, and the, 25-year police veteran, Mexican dude, you know, probably a Catholic, filling out the police report. And he got so frustrated at us, Pastor, because we were very calm, of course. He took his pen like that and slammed it into the book sideways and said, you two men ought to get down on your knees. And thank God that he didn't wake up, pointed at me. Took us outside to the back end of the RV, showed us the two sets of footprints in the busted-out window. You know, the, the Bible could be true. There's at least a 50-50 chance it's true. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. And if, you, and if you're more of a southern gospel person than a Bible person, and every night as you lay down, angels are camping all around. Now, the, the, the bottom line is, he, that cop is saying, if I woke up, that guy would have sent me into the next dispensation. He giveth his beloved sleep. Right? You say, you slept through the whole break-in? <laughs> now, that guy stole my cell phone. I don't know what else he took. 
He's obviously my enemy. He would have killed me. How can he be beloved at the same time? That verse you just read said that's exactly what that Jew is in relationship to you. He's your enemy, and he's beloved. Now, wait a minute. What, what, what do you mean enemy? Then you write a 900-page book that's pro-Israel? There's two of them on the table that are pro-Israel. The neutron bomb guy who's an atheist. Sam Cohen wrote the afterward to that book, and he's, he's, a, he's an atheist. But it's a pro-Israel book. That's two books on the table. Yeah, but I know what the Bible says. Paul told you those Jews are your enemies. Now, it always gets quiet at this point. Every time I preach, I've been preaching a sermon since 2017 when that book came out. And I want it to get quiet because it's a great object lesson. First of all, it's good that you get quiet. That shows you're not in this group over here. These crazy new, new Baptists running around attacking Israel. That's a good sign. But they're as messed up as Hogan's goat. Uh, ever heard of the ACLU? The American Civil Liberties Union? You know 80% of those top lawyers in that thing are Jews. Anybody, everybody on Fox News, pardon the expression, knows that that's true. The president, of the, the president of the ACLU at the moment is a Jewish lesbian. You ever heard of a guy named Adam Schiff? You ever heard of a guy named Jerry Nadler? You ever heard of Feinstein? You ever heard of Chuck Schumer? You ever heard of the top senator in my, anti-Trump senator in my state, Tennessee, Cohen? Those aren't Pollock names. Ever heard of Ruth Ginsburg? Ever heard of Ellen Kagan on the Supreme Court? They hate Trump. They hate America. They're rank liberals. They hate Israel. They're all Jews. Did you ever hear of communism? How many ever heard of communism? <laughs> Founded by a good little Jewish boy named Karl Marx. Did you, you, do you know why the morons in this country don't know what bathroom to use? Literally. Do you know why? Because of this Jewish boy right here. Duh. Sigmund Freud, another Jew. You know, I just got back from preaching a whole week in Pace, Florida, two weeks ago for the amazing, marvelous Grace Girls Home down there, Stephen Blankenship. Do you know that Baptist Girls Home, juvenile delinquent cows, had two sweet little Jewish girls saved, one from Ethiopia? You know where they get, you know they get support checks in the mail? Look, not every month, but periodically. Look. From the greatest serial killer in the history of the East Coast. Matter of fact, the guy had two, two nicknames. Son of Sam and 44 caliber killer. That's the gun he used. Shoot people up all, over, all these women. They said he was the only man that ever gave the city that never sleeps a nightmare. David Berkowitz. You all remember him? He got saved in prison about 25 years ago. I visited, visited him four times. Face-to-face, -face, no screens, hugging, praying with him. Bought him lunch out of a vending machine. The first lunch I ever bought him was a cheesesteak out of a vending machine. His choice. You know, nuked in the microwave. I'm vomiting almost watching him eat that thing like it's a T-bone steak because I'm a cheesesteak connoisseur type guy for real. Here's a picture of him sitting in his jail cell holding his King James Bible. 
You'd think CNN would want to do a story uh, on a convicted, converted Jewish serial killer with a 360-year jail sentence, sending money to a Baptist girls' home. They're not interested in stuff like that. Well, what's that got to do with the price of eggs? The first time I visited him, he said, he said, Brother Bill, he said, you know what got me hooked on Satanism? His nickname is the Son of Sam because his next-door neighbor in Yonkers his name was named Sam, and Sam had a dog. And Berkowitz thought the dog was talking to him, telling him who to kill because he was into the Satanism. He said the thing that got me hooked on Satanism were two things. Mothers, pay attention to this. He said, number one, watching the movie uh, Rosemary's Baby repeatedly at the movie theater when he was 14. And number two, he said, reading this guy's Satanic Bible, Anton LaVey, the founder of the First Church of Satan, and the Satanic Bible, another Jewish boy. Those Jews are messed up, neighbor. I, I assume most of you believe in traditional marriage. Well, Adam and Eve went to Adam and Steve five years ago with a 5-4 Supreme Court ruling. Two liberal Roman Catholics and all three Jewish justices. You know the Jews are 2% of the population of America? And while Ginsburg was still breathing, they were one-third of the highest court in the land? Think about that. 2% of the population, 33% of the judges on the court, Supreme Court. They're powerful. They're brilliant people. They're burned out. They missed their Messiah, so they're supposed to be ruling. The, the millennium would have broke over 2,000 years ago, but they missed the time of the visitation, and now they just t- take over any place they go because they're that brilliant. Their power isn't to gain wealth. God told her that in numbers. I give thee power to get wealth. All these people that say racism, you know, races are all the same. Are you nuts? That God doth put a difference between Israel and the Egyptians. You ever read that verse in Exodus? You think the average black person or the average white person can handle money as good as a Jew can? Are you out of your mind? Ladies, help me out, will you? I can't remember. What's the first three letters of jewelry? I don't remember. My father grew up in Hell's Kitchen in New York, 47th Street, West Side. He said he could still remember as a kid hanging out in front of the local Jew's jewelry store, you know, with his stupid teenage friends. And the, the Jewish guy would run out with the broom, you know, own the jewelry store, smacking them all with the broom, saying, stay away from my windows and let the sun shine in on my diamonds. <laughs> who, who doesn't know that? Dr. Ruckman used to say the reason Gentiles hate Jews so much is because Gentiles love money and Jews know how to make it. This Jew came into a village one time and the mayor met him at the border. He says, we don't allow any Jews in our village. And the, and the Jew said, that's why it's still a village. <laughs> God just made those people brilliant. And they take over every economy they get into. You know, Secretary of Treasury, Munchen, Munchen you know, he's the, you know. That's not a muncher from you know, uh, Lizard of Oz. He, he's another Jew. What are you going to do? <laughs> so anyway, they take over, and, and there's always problems, okay? So they, they're, they're, they're expert with, with precious stones because they're getting run out of one country after another, and they can't handle their real estate, yank it with them. They take their precious stones with them. Now, l- let me tell you something really neat here. Uh, the reason that you get up, uh, the reason things get quiet when I start talking about the negative stuff about Jews, it's beautiful. 
It's beautiful. One of the sweetest truths I put in that book I got from a guy in New Jersey. I'll be preaching in their church Thursday, first week of December, a little church in New Jersey. There's a church member come up to me with bib overalls, an old dude, at least 68 years old. And he said, he said, Brother Bill, he said, do you know why we don't like to hear negative things about the Jews? You know, like, I mean, I'm quoting Paul, and you want to get, you want to punch him out now. I mean, enemies of the gospel. I love Israel. I love the Jews. Well, I do too, but hold on now, Nellie. He said, you know why that is? And why we, a flip side of the coin, why we gravitate to all things pro-Jewish, and especially you hear the Hebrew language. You know, you go into a trance hearing Hebrew spoken. I do, don't you? Compare that to Arabic, you know. Them two, them two uh, you know, uh, ISIS uh, terrorist fathers, you know, stand now, Qaeda fathers standing there, one at the other guy's house. You have the pictures up on the mantle of your kids, you know, and the one says to the other one, they blow up so quickly, don't they? <laughs> Boom. Why is it, he said, he said, do you want to know, how many of you sincere people, you can't keep up with me, you're going nuts trying to follow what I'm saying. You get the tape and you put it on slow speed. Play it back. You get it slow, everything will be fine. He, he said, do you know why you get that way? He, he said, I said, why? He says, because you have a Jew inside of you. Christ in you, Colossae Church Gentiles, the hope of glory. You're okay. Don't feel secondary, second fiddle to those Jewish Jews in Jerusalem. You're as good as they are. You got the Messiah inside of you. And that's why you get that positive vibe. Isn't that beautiful? But God doesn't want you to be imbalanced. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. I asked you, you know, so, so the idea is uh, they're messed up, but the deal is God's not done with them. This, Jew, this crowd over here, the new anti-Jewish Baptists, you know, they, they're, they're convinced the Jew is finished, and they know all these statistics. They, they run Hollywood. They run the pornography industry, corrupt everything. Hey, we're in, we're in Afghanistan 19 years because of a movement called the neocons. You hear about that. It's short for neoconservatives. I was started by a guy in New York by the name of Crystal, a Jew. You know, they like that padding over there, that security for Israel. You know, no matter how many of our boys get wiped out. So the more, and that's why you can't ever study conspiracy history without getting into anti-Semitism sooner or later. And that's where you've got to put the brakes on. That's not of God. Because they're enemies of the gospel. But as touching the election, they are beloved. Present tense. For the Father's sakes. God knows they're messed up, but he made some promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's going to fulfill them no matter how messed up their children have become. So one day that Jew is going to be restored. Like I said, restoration theology, not replacement theology. Now, and by the way, they're not all bad. No way. How many of you uh, ladies remember that uh, little song uh, or poem? I don't know what the heck it was. The little girl with the curl. Remember that? When she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad... She was horrid. That's the Jew. Aren't you glad a Jew named Salk invented the polio vaccine? I have no problem with that vaccine, amen? Right? Anybody love, I love, Amer I mean, God bless America. Remember that beautiful song written by Irving Berlin? A Jew wrote White Christmas. 
a Jewish woman, Emma Lazarus, put the words on your Statue of Liberty. Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. A Jewish, a Jewish banker, Heim Salman from Philadelphia, bankrolled the entire American Revolution for George Washington. It's over $600,000 in, you know, and that was 17th, 18th century money. Mil- multiplied millions today. Never got paid back one penny. Those Jews can be really good, but they can be really messed up too. That's God's business. You're supposed to pray for them. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem and pull for them and wait on God to do what he's going to do. All right, now here's the deal. God made a promise. All Israel would be saved someday. We're waiting on that. Now here's the deal. You think he's going to keep that promise? I've got two sermon, two verses for this sermon. I gave you one. Here's the second one. Look at 2 Timothy real quick. Can you think God's word is good? You old timers remember that saying, that bumper sticker, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it? They came out with another one with the same three expressions one time, and they had the middle one crossed out. God said it, that settles it. Who gives two flips? Who believes it? If God said he's going to save that Jew, he's going to save that Jew. He is. Here's a, I love this verse, 2 Timothy 2, 2, verse 12. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. That's the millennium. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Not a place in heaven, but a significant rule in the millennium. Here it is. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot what? He's going to come through, neighbor. He will. Hey, he's already committed the first part of it. They're back in the land. That bush is still burning. The other bush has found out not to mess with the burning bush. Amen. You think I'm kidding? You go look at that red book back there. I have a photograph of Bush 41 walking through what's left of his bedroom in Kenny Bunkport, Maine, when the Lord sent that perfect storm through and destroyed half of his mansion and wiped the whole eastern seaboard up. He was over in Madrid, Spain, brokering the Madrid peace deal, telling Arafat, you got to give Israel promises for, you know, that for security, and you Jews got to give him the West Bank. God didn't think that was too cool. He sent the perfect storm and sent Bush coming home a day early to see what's left of his mansion. And that was the burning Bush and George Bush. Uh, blah, blah, blah. So, the, uh, so here's the thing. God's going to keep his word. Now, all I want to do, I, I got, you know, first half of this message is over. The second half is simply a story that will keep you on the edge of your seats in a beautiful way. That's, that book on Israel is 900 pages. My son is a detective at the Blunt County Sheriff's Office in Tennessee and did it. And I live 29 miles from Cades Cove. If you know anything about Cades Cove, number one park in America. I must have done something right in my previous life. <laughs> Man, I'm right in the Smoky Mountains. I am. And he did, my son did a time study on that Israel book, and is, uh, he, he come up with 18,000 hours. So it was 18, six years, 10 hours a day. I mean, I'm not, you know, your preacher works himself into the ground, as soon as his wife. You know, that's how we do it. We're just doing our own thing, Brother Johnny, same way. Now, what I'm getting at is, you know, I got one sermon on the book. I'm, I'm not going to pick a boring story. You understand? First time I told this, the Lord told me, he never heard that before. That's me and the Lord. We're mates. Relax. Me and him. He hasn't smacked me yet. This is my sense of humor, right, Lord? Uh, here's the story. Now, look. 
The, the, one, of the, one of the real naive things about the you know, good Baptists that love Israel, right? We're naive. We don't know how bad they are half the time. What we don't realize is how irreligious the Jews are. 80% of the Jews breathing air today, I don't care if it's Louisville, Kentucky, where they live, Brooklyn, Tel Aviv, 80% are secular Jews, which is a nice way of saying atheists. They don't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sure, they don't believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in the God of Moses. They do. And if you push them about it, you mean you don't even believe in, you know, the God in the Old Testament? You know what they'll tell you? This is their catchphrase if you press them. Our, our God, you know, the God you think we worship, our God died in the Holocaust. That's the, that's the cliche they use. But you know better than that from looking at the Bible. They've always been at odds with God. They didn't start at the Holocaust. That's just a scam. I was in Milwaukee preaching last year, and I went down to the big public school downtown Milwaukee, the main school, got a big plaque on the wall. Golda Meir graduated here. And that's the only woman prime minister that Israel ever had. And she's a socialist like Bernie Sanders and an atheist. Her famous quota has always been, I am a socialist and therefore I cannot believe in God. That's how they are. It's just, and here's the sick part. I mean, I was in Israel re- doing research for this book five, six years ago. And I'm on a, a, a little private tour with a Jewish woman guide in the Tower of David in the old city of Jerusalem. And I asked that lady about Ezekiel 38. You know, what her opinion was. She said, oh, I think that guy was on drugs when he wrote that. Mr. Grady, did you see this painting over here? Blah, blah. I thought he was on drugs. You know, Ezekiel. He didn't flinch. David, ben, David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, four foot 11 inches tall, white hair shooting out of his head like Einstein. I got to visit his home. It's like a museum in Tel Aviv. All it is is bookcases. Once in a while, oh, look, a little bed here. Ooh, ooh, a table. Just bookcases, bookcases all over his house. He spoke about eight languages. No time for God. Big time atheist. They're all that way. And here's the sick part. The 20% of the Jews that, are, that do believe in God, you think to yourself, well, I know they don't read the New Testament, but at least they read the Old Testament, right, Brother Grady? No, wrong on that one too. Why would an unsaved person read any part of the Bible consistently without coming to God ultimately? They don't read this. That would get them under conviction. You mean they don't even read their Old Testament? No. They read something you hear of called the Talmud. The Talmud, that's like a 25-volume set of books that started in the captivity and it's even edited as recently as the 20th century. Rabbis sticking things in there about crazy things. They're messed up, man. Why do you think they've been getting beat up for 2,000 years? I've been to Auschwitz twice. Twice too many time trips there. My wife was a Nurse, when we got married, she likes autopsy shows. You know, all that blood stuff doesn't phase her one bit. It took one year out of the six years to write the three Holocaust chapters in that book. She had to walk away from the computer at least a dozen times in a year. Couldn't deal with the material. Too depressing. Yep, 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 yep. So, despite, now, now look, 
David Ben-Gurion is an atheist, but he's not stupid. Now, let me show you something. Here's a famous photograph, okay? Here's a famous photograph. of David. There's 200 photographs in the book. If you can't read, you can look at the pictures, amen? Here's a picture of Ben-Gurion. Everybody knows May 14th, 1948. That's when Israel declared their independence. It didn't go into effect until midnight. They announced it at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. At midnight, bang, they, they become a nation at the UN, okay? And here's the picture of Ben-Gurion standing behind a table in a packed room, a museum in Tel Aviv. And he's reading that document right there, which is the Declaration of Independence. And now, listen to this. What, you're not gonna, what you never have heard is what those guys were doing that morning, at 10 o'clock in the morning. They were still arguing about one last decision about that declaration. They don't have a constitution, but their Declaration of Independence. Something that they had been, you know, you know the expression, kick the can down the hole? Sure. The alley, keep on procrastinating. There was a decision that had not been made yet. And they'll make it about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon because they're fighting over it. And you're not going to believe what it is. I've got two or three uh, Israeli historians that I cite in this chapter, meaning I don't put stupid things I hear on the Internet in the book. Peter Jennings from ABC News used to say, if you hear a rumor your mother loves you, check it out. I don't believe in fake news. Everything in my books are documented. And so what, is it, what were they arguing about? You're never going to believe it. They were arguing about whether they were going to put the name Jehovah in their founding Declaration of Independence. Eighty percent said forget about it, roughly. The 20 percent religious Jews, oh, we got to put it in there. About three o'clock in the afternoon, Ben-Gurion came up with a compromise. And he said to the Jews, look, I don't, you're not going to like this, but half a bagel's better than none. Eh? You better take what you can get. And, the, and that was the secular Jews came up with a cute idea that instead of calling Jehovah, Jehovah, call them the Rock of Israel in the Hebrew equivalent, the Rock of Israel. We're tree huggers, evolutionists, worship the earth, the Rock of Israel. That can be, you know, that's a joke to us. You want that little crumb, we'll throw that to you. The, Jews, the religious Jews thought that was blasphemy, but again, they had showtime was coming up at 4 o'clock. They got to do something. They put that thing in at the last minute. Now, if you ever wanted to get an insight into how stiff-necked they are, like, the, like, like God said they were, they've got six hours before they're going to get attacked by five armies at midnight. And their last business is arguing about keeping the God of Moses out of their document. That's that Jew. He's as messed up as they come. Sure. Look at their crazy. I got a friend right now, Nashville, Tennessee, top real estate salesman out of 300 agents in Nashville, his first year as a realtor. I have his picture in this book. We've been friends for 10 years. You know the, the movie American Sniper? He's the Israeli version of that. He's the top sniper in Israel. Here's a picture of him going through... Uh, uh, going through a, uh, what do you call it, a special ops mission in uh, the Gaza Strip. And, and he was my guide over there. He's a, he's a tough, tough, tough dude right there. His name is Zion. And uh, he told me, preacher, he told me the worst Holocaust joke I ever heard in my life. These Jews are messed up. And he's, my, he's like a son to me, but he's messed up, you know. You know what he said? He said, Bill, Bill. 
He said, did you know why Hitler shot himself? I said, why? He said he saw the gas bill. That's a Jew, man. That's a Jew. That's like Joan Rivers, man. She had more Holocaust jokes than, than normal jokes. <coughs> what are you going to do? Paul told you they're messed up. Now, Ben-Gurion was an atheist, like everybody else over there, but he wasn't stupid. He knew they were going to be in trouble at midnight. I got pictures in the book. Israel comes into existence at midnight, and I got the pictures of all the Jews out there doing their folk dancing in the street. They stopped dancing about uh, 1230, Grace. That's when the first bombs started dropping from the Egyptian bombers. They got invaded by five armies. Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and Egypt coming up the coastline. All right? Now, so that's in May. Go back to January. Ben-Gurion knows he's in trouble then. Because, listen, it's not five armies to one army. That would have been bad enough odds. Look, it was five to zero. The Jews had no army. The British were in charge of Palestine ever since World War I ended by 1921. No time to explain it all. Israel was part of the Turkish Empire. And the whole thing got carved up. Turkey, Thanksgiving, you ever want to know where the Middle East came from? The whole Turkish Empire got carved up. All new countries were made. They were, Turkey went with Germany in World War I, so to the victor go to spoils. And all the new nations were created. And the UN assigned the new nations to various allied governments to oversee until they, the countries could be strong enough on their own. Britain got Israel. And here's something 99% of the Christians never learned. Britain, hate, Britain hated the Jews and loved the Arabs. Anybody ever see, uh, uh, what's, the, uh, what the heck, what's that movie? Uh, pfft, uh, my mind just went blank. Doc, uh, not Dr. Shivago. The movie about, uh, what do you call it? Come on, help me out here, will you? Help me out here. It won seven Academy Awards. You know the movie about, uh, what is that movie? It's the movie about Britain in World War I and uh, 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 <laughs> I have never forgotten that stupid movie one time. It's a Joe Biden impersonation. It has got to be a Joe Biden moment. Don't worry about it. It's not, if I can't remember, it's not that important. Uh, I'll think of it later. Seven Academy Awards. About that British soldier that got uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Come on! You watch that movie. You know they loved the they loved the, the Arabs, but they hated the Jews. And the Jews weren't allowed to carry guns even to protect themselves. All they had, so they had no standing army. All they had were illegal militia, illegal underground militias. The Haganah. The Aragon, the Stern Gang, some of these terms you're familiar with. Those were like, and they were there. They had to hide their weapons. They were mostly there to protect the Jews on the frontier on the kibbutzes, okay, the cooperative farms, right? So they, they were going to be, and those, and listen, the only military Israel had underground, they're fighting each other 24 hours a day, killing each other for weapons. True story. I mean, Paul said they're contrary to all men, Thessalonians. You ever read that verse? Now look, there's an old expression. If you have two Jews, you have three views. <laughs> They'll argue about anything. They're worse than Italians, amen. And listen, when, when the war was over, Ben-Gurion, I mean, that's what he's pulling his hair out of his head. That's why his hair is like that. 
He visits President Truman in Washington because Truman loved the Jews. He did more for them than anybody. And Truman's making small talk with him. He says, Mr. Ben-Gurion, it must be a blessing being the first prime minister of the new state of Israel. And Ben-Gurion said, Mr. President, I am prime minister of 500,000 prime ministers. <laughs> so he's, he's all messed up. How are we going to save the nation when five countries are going to attack us? Now, they had two problems. Listen to this. They had two problems. They had no weapons. Nobody would sell them any weapons. George, General Marshall, remember him? Five-star General Marshall from World War II, saving Private Ryan, reading the letter. He hated the Jews, and he had an arms embargo. Nobody would give Israel any, any weapons. And the second thing, they had no military leadership, no organization. God, God solved the problems both ways in the most bizarre, you wouldn't believe the bizarre ways he did it. The first one was a guy named Robert Maxwell saved the Jews with weapons. Who's that? He was a Jew. You're not, any young people in here tonight? All right, for you young people, I am, I am so going somewhere with this story. See, that? that's me, young people talk. I am so going somewhere with this. So Robert Maxwell, Robert Maxwell is a Jew who was born in Czechoslovakia, 1920s. By, by World War II, he's living in Britain, working with MI6, their CIA. About 1947, he learns from his MI6 contacts that Stalin in Russia is working with MI6 to overthrow the Czechoslovakian government. Stalin's building that iron, you know, iron curtain, remember that? Well, now this poor guy, this Jew is, is, is you know, stuck. Do I stay loyal to MI6 or my native Czechoslovakia? Well, he tells MI6 to take a long walk off a short pier. And he tells the, sec the security forces in Czechoslovakia about this coup d'etat is coming. Long story short, that, that helps them save their nation. Stalin will get them two or three years later, but it buys them a window of two or three more years of freedom. They say to the Maxwell, how can we repay you, right? You know what he says? My new adopted country, Israel, is coming up next year. They need weapons. Please sell them weapons. And Czechoslovakian government sold them everything they needed. They got every gun, every airplane, every tank, anti-tank gun, everything they, everything they had in the War of 48, they got from one little country, Czechoslovakia. Now, you know something? You're not going to believe this. Like I said, you know, I'm so going somewhere. Maxwell went on to be a billionaire publisher in Great Britain. He owned all those tabloid papers that everybody loves, you know, the, you know the, with all the pictures in them. Oh, I say, what's the queen doing this week? Oh, you know, all that gossip junk. When I was a kid in New York, the number one newspaper was the New York Daily News. This guy, Maxwell, bought the New York Daily News, 1991. All that to say this, he dies a very mysterious death in the Virgin Islands. He falls off his own yacht, naked. They fish his body out of the ocean. Are you familiar with this little story? And blah, blah, blah. Hey, they give him a state funeral in Israel, one of the biggest heroes the country ever had in their brief history. All the former prime ministers are there, blah, blah, blah. He's buried, hello, on the Mount of Olives. But after he, he died, they found that he was the biggest crook in Israel. <laughs> he was the Jewish version of Jimmy Hoffa. Stole $500 million from his own pension plans. You know, just a crook. Oh, by the way, the yacht he fell off, the yacht he fell off of, you know, is named after his uh, sixth child, I think it was, a girl. 
The name of the boat was the Lady Grislane. I already told you, in that last name, it's Maxwell. Ring any bells? Before the COVID hit, it was on Fox News every week, as in they were looking for that gal. They caught her in New Hampshire, a month after I finished preaching there. Yeah, she's locked up there where Jeffrey was locked up. Remember him? Yeah, she was his call girl, or his mistress. Imagine that, the greatest hero in Israel's history that was used to save their necks. His daughter was the greatest pedophile of the 21st century. She's got the little book. All Jeffrey's customers out there. You know, the Clintons are at the top of the list. <laughs> we'll see where that thing goes. But that was two problems Israel had. No weapons, but the big problem was they had nobody to tell them what to do. So here's the true story that a, a book and a movie has been made about this story. And I'll close with this. So... Ben-Gurion sends a secret delegation to Washington in January of 1948. February, March, April, four months to zero hour when they're going to get attacked. And that delegation is there to ask for some American military genius to volunteer to come over there to tell them what to do. Or they're going to get wiped out, you know. And so one American colonel steps forward and volunteers to go over there. His name is David Marcus. His nickname is Mickey. He's from the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where all Jews are from, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Romanian immigrants, his parents. Now watch, a book was written about this called Cast a Giant Shadow, and Hollywood made a major feature-length film with the same title. Now, we're not, this is not a movie campaign this week. But it's, a, it's an unbelievable movie. Everybody and their grandmother wanted to get into it and was in the movie. John Wayne was in the thing, Yoel Brenner, Frank Sinatra, Kirk Douglas, a Jew in real life. His Hebrew name was as long as his plat platform. You couldn't pronounce it with 10 lexicons. He plays the lead role of David Marcus. Now, who was David Marcus? He was the top man at the Pentagon at the time, brilliant-wise again, right? He graduates from West Point, key part of the story, uh, with high honors under Douglas MacArthur as commandant. You men out there, he was an ultimate man's man. He was a light heavyweight boxing champion at West Point. When he graduated with honors, he went to Brooklyn Law College in New York, became a, a judge, the youngest judge in the history of New York City. Uh, he, he helped put Lucky Luciano away. A lot of weird things. But... Um, when Pearl Harbor gets bombed, right, they reactivate his military commission. They send him to Hawaii to train the 101st Airborne for the D-Day invasion. In the meantime, he's working at JAG at the Pentagon, the legal department. Brilliant, right? Uh, they got him chained to the desk. They're not going to let him get into any hot zone. They need him. He's so smart, preacher, he's going to write the surrender documents for the German army to sign. Truth, you ever heard that on the History Channel? God used a Jew to write the surrender papers for the German army, Yodel and the rest of them to sign. He, invented, he goes to all those conferences with the Roosevelt, Stalin, Churchill, Yalta. He's their legal advisor to Roosevelt. He interviewed all the Nuremberg judges. This is the top guy. What else is new? A Jew. When they jump on D-Day, my wife's father is on the Omaha Beach, 2nd Wave, 29th Division, uh, Infantry. They've, the 101st Airborne's parachuted into France already. Look, 
He sneaks away from his desk job, pulls some strings, pardon the pun, and jumps with the 101st Airborne, leading firefights, killing all the Nazis, right? Meantime, they find out he's missing. They went nuts at the Pentagon. They sent a three-star general looking for him. The, guy, the general finds him and gives him a, cu- a good cussing out. What the blankety-blank-blank blank are you doing here, Marcus? He said, I'm sorry, sir, I got lost. And they boot him back to the Pentagon, you know, with a stern reprimand. This is the guy we're talking about. And by the way, you want to know what's funny? If you ever heard that expression, chutzpah, chutzpah, that's what a Jew has, brashness, you know, something. When he jumped out of the airplane there, that's the first time he ever jumped out of a plane. <laughs> he trained 8,000 paratroopers and never jumped out of a plane himself. So how do you do that? He says, just jump through that door and pull that string, yo, Geronimo, on the way down. Everything will be okay. That's true. How could a guy get away with that? That's what Jews are famous for. They said the most famous example of chutzpah were these two boys, this boy that got convicted for killing his parents, you know, like a 16-year-old kid. The judge calls him up to the bench and he says, you got anything to say before formal sentencing? The kid falls down on his knees and says, have mercy on me, I'm an orphan. That's chutzpah, right? All right, so that's the guy in the movie. You see John Wayne playing the, his superior officer at the Pentagon trying to talk him, Kirk Douglas, into going over there. What do you want to go over there for? You're going to risk your career. That's a dust bowl. What do you need that headache for? Blah, 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 diplomatic nightmare. And you see Kirk Douglas saying, you don't understand. Your family didn't get wiped out in the Holocaust like mine, you know. So they finally agree to let him go with two little conditions. Number one, he's got to go over there with a fake passport. You understand? Britain is in charge of Palestine up to the last day. Then they tag team to the Arabs and leave all the guns and stuff, and then Britain goes out. So he can't go over there as an American. And what's the second condition? They said, if you get caught, we never hurt you. Doesn't that make sense, right? So they shake hands. That's January. February, Colonel Marcus lands there with a fake name, fake passport, as a construction worker. You know, the the Jews pick him up. You know, it's understood what he's going to do. They make him a brigadier general. They're looking at him like he's the Messiah. He's going to save their lives. John Wayne doesn't let him take any military manuals in. He has to recreate from photographic memory five military manuals. He's got th- three months to build an army with a bunch of nut jobs killing themselves 24-7. Fast forward, save time here on the clock. The war starts, and everything he taught them to do worked. Taught them a bunch of guerrilla warfare stuff, hit and run, rap patrol stuff. And after about four weeks, those five armies are running in five different directions. So what do you think happens? The UN jumps in, the United Nuts, as usual, when the bad guys are getting whooped, hold it, hold it, the bad guys are getting whipped. cease fire. <laughs> and they set a ceasefire date. Now, I'm, I'm well past third base on this sermon, more than halfway to home plate, home plates when we go home and have coffee. The ending is the killer. You're not going to believe how this ends. And so, uh, blah, 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 let's go, to, let's go a couple of weeks before the ceasefire kicks in. The other major thing the, the movie will bring out, and the, that the book brings out, 
is that Jer Jerusalem itself is surrounded by Arabs and the Jews are starving, like a siege. Watch, there's one highway, if you've ever been to Israel, it's US-1. One highway comes up into Jerusalem, up, you know, it's elevated up to Jerusalem, and all the, the, the road is parallel with all these high ridges up here that have machine gun emplacements from the British days. When the British left, I told you, they tag-teamed off to the Arabs. And Arabs got all these gun emplacements guarding the one road into Jerusalem. They can't get any caravans of supplies into the Jews. They're starving to death in there. So the, what the movie shows you is that Marcus is so brilliant. On this side, here's one big ridge and there's a ravine here, look. Way over here, he finds a goat path. I don't, I don't know what a goat path is. Okay, I, I was in, growing up as a little kid in New York one time, nine, nine years old. I'm walking with a friend of mine, a Hungarian dude, John Gases. We saw a blade of grass in the crack of the sidewalk. I still remember the guy, 1958. Hey, Bill, look, we're out in the, we're out in the country today. <laughs> I don't know what a goat, I guess a goat path is a path some goats go on. Is that right? Or I'm just guessing for months I've been using this illustration. He brings a bunch of bulldozers and engineers and Jewish laborers in. And in three or four days, they build a suicide road. Look, going up this mountain pass into Jerusalem through the back way. And it's so scary, they'll show you in the movie, that Marcus has to get into the first trial run truck because nobody wants to try it. And anybody ever seen this movie, Cast a Giant Shadow? And, and, they, and they make it in, and look, two days before that ceasefire goes into effect, 40, 50 trucks arrive with suicide supplies and saves the city. It's the biggest part of the story, apart from them winning the war, ultimately. Now, let's remember this ceasefire. Now, watch. So the ceasefire is set up for 7 a.m. on a particular date. Look, when that's going on, uh, uh, Marcus is bivouacked with his officers one mile outside of Jerusalem in a Catholic church in an Arab village named Abu Ghush. You're not going to believe this. This is almost the wrong place to inject this as humor, but you can't make stuff like that up. Here's the large, I, live in, I live in Tennessee. They still think Elvis Presley is alive over there. Here's the largest statue of Elvis Presley in the world. 16 feet tall is a picture of it. Here's, you know where it is? It's in that Arab village, one mile outside of Jerusalem. Here's four Israeli Elvis impersonators in jumpsuits posing in front of that statue. And the third one in is a woman. They love Elvis in Israel because his great-great-great-grandmother was Jewish, believe it or not. Well, that's where Colonel Marcus is with his officers in this Catholic church. Watch. Well, 2 o'clock in the morning he gets up to use the potty. And uh, it's a cold night, so he puts a white sheet over his head, comes out, talks to the guard, the sentry there a little bit, and then walks over and disappears over a stone wall, you know, over here somewhere. And he's gone for about 40 minutes. When he comes back, he's surprised to be confronted by a different sentry that came on duty 10, 15 minutes earlier than he should have. And this sentry doesn't speak English. 19-year-old Russian Jew. And he just speaks Hebrew, and he sees a figure approaching him with a white sheet over his head. And he yells in Hebrew for the password. 
as brilliant as David Marcus is, he doesn't speak Hebrew. He speaks Yiddish, like a pig Latin, a broken Hebrew. He yells in American, English, I'm Colonel Marcus. This Russian Jew gets nervous and he fires, or he doesn't understand what he said, he fires a warning shot into the air. That spooks Marcus, who dives behind a tree. And that kid fires a second round and puts a bullet right through his heart and kills him on the spot. See, the Jew can't win. Sad, he can't win. This crowd over here, Stephen Anderson, Arizona, they, any ba Jewish Baptist, yay, ding dong, the witches, they, they love stuff like this. All of Israel went into mourning, just like the Confederacy did when Stonewall Jackson was killed by his sentry. David Ben-Gurion said he was the greatest soldier we had in the whole country. They classified him as the last uh, casualty of the War of Independence. Two hours after he's dead, they have the major ceasefire. They put him in a plain white coffin, pine box coffin. I have a picture here of them taking the coffin out of the morgue. A very sad story. Here he is. being taken out of the morgue. They put, put an Israeli flag over his coffin, flew him to New York for a state funeral. Everybody and anybody jammed their way into that plane. Moshe, Diane, Ben-Gurion, everybody. And they flew him to Manhattan. The mayor was at the funeral, the governor of New York, the secretary of the treasury, another Jew back then, just like today, Morgenthau representing the White House. And you see newsreels about it. You see his wife weeping. They're giving her all his medals. Filthy, you know, a movie made in Hollywood run by the Jews has him having a girlfriend over in Israel behind his wife's back. Totally bogus. He, he was very much in love with his wife. And then the motorcade takes him up to the point to be buried at West Point. Key part of the whole story, I'm telling you all this for this reason. I've been to his grave twice. I have a picture of his grave in the book. It says, Colonel David Marcus, Colonel David Mickey Marcus, a soldier for all humanity. And if you talk to a guide at West Point, you know what they'll tell you? They'll tell you that his grave is the most unique grave in West Point because he's the only American soldier buried there who died fighting under a foreign flag. He didn't die under the American flag. He died under the Star of David. Oh, by the way, did I tell you what his fake name was on his fake passport? Uh, Michael Stone. Michael Stone. Tell me the Lord doesn't have a sense of humor. Remember the Rock of Israel? We don't want Jehovah. Just call him the Rock of Israel. <laughs> You know what the Rock of Israel used to save those recalcitrant, stiff-necked Jews? He used the stone, like that other David used. And even Michael is the archangel that's there for Israel's protection. They can't see that. Now, why did I tell you that story? For one reason. Every sermon usually has a closing illustration, you know, and books do too. So this book is six years writing, 
I'm almost done with it, and I don't even know what I'm gonna, how I'm going to end the book until I got to that cemetery at West Point. Because when I was at the cemetery, Pastor, the Lord gave me the close to the whole book. And I'll close the sermon with the, the last part of that little story because this is the part you're not going to believe, and I promise you, you're not going to believe. Well, the corner of the building here, you know, the corner of your auditorium, if you put that about the spot where his grave is, you can go right to about here, preacher. There's another grave site here. That same guide at West Point will tell you that's the most unique grave site in the cemetery, and this one is the second most unique. And not for a million dollars are you going to believe who's buried here. And this is the end of my sermon. There was a, it was a, uh, a Donald Trump in, a, in New York in the 1800s. His name was uh, Warner. Henry Warner, he was not a Jew, like Trump's not a Jew, but he was a millionaire investor, owned properties all around the world, lived in a massive townhouse in Manhattan. Watch it now, just like uh, Grace and her friend. I don't know how exactly old they are, but he had two teenage daughters, a little younger than these gals probably. Two teenage daughters. Mother, the mother just died, so he's got like a nanny or somebody looking after his girls. Well, he's, you know, doing everything. He buys an island in the Hudson River right off the shore of West Point. You could stand at the edge of West Point. Anybody ever visited West Point here? You go, okay, you're over there. You got these cannons there. You get to the very edge of the water where the Hudson is here. Look, you could throw a rock hard enough. You can hit the island. It's only 200 acres. Very strategic to West Point. That's what Benedict Arnold was all about, betraying West Point to the British. I'll be in, New, I'll be in well, I was going to go to Newburgh, New York next week, but New York is quarantined. I can't even get in there. Long story short, there's a museum there, and you can see the chain, part of the chain that George Washington had stretched across the Hudson from that little island to West Point to block British ships coming down to Hudson River. Warner buys that island from the private owner who had it because he's going to build a hotel there. He's going to be Donald Trump thing. Before he can do it, there's a financial panic that wipes him out, and he loses all his money. And he's got gone from riches to rags, just like that. And he, and he loses the townhouse, loses everything. But preacher, I don't, understand, I don't know all the details, but somehow he's able to hang on to that island. And so anybody remember Green Acres TV? Okay, there's a broken down cottage of some kind on that island, and these... You know, these, uh, like, like uh, Trump's daughter, you know, today, all these highfalutin two girls, man, they, they just lose everything overnight. They got to move out of their townhouse and move into this broken down farmhouse. You can't make stuff like this up. The father never recovers mentally. He's messed up. Guess what happens? Those two girls start looking for God. My mother killed herself when I was 11 years old. I didn't care about the New York Yankees anymore. I was trying to find out where did my mother go. Those two girls start looking for God. Hello. They both get saved at a revival meeting in a Presbyterian church in the 1830s there in New York City. And like the black preacher would say, they got muchly saved. When they come back to that broken down townhouse, not only... Are they saved? But God has given both of those girls a unique gift where they could write short stories and poems and songs in their genre, you know, with youth groups now and all the churches in New York and New Jersey because all their material was gospel stuff.
they start getting some of their material published. It's so good, but not enough to become wealthy, but just enough to keep the bills paid. Because daddy, you know, Scarlett O'Hara's father, gone with the wind, and he's out to lunch. Now, long story short, watch this. The years start clicking along here. Daddy dies eventually. Those two girls are all by themselves on that doofy island, serving God, trusting God. Aren't you glad you know the Lord in this nutty time, brother? I don't want to be pious, preacher, but as God is my witness, if I'm an ex-Catholic, I'd put my hand on the Bible, but I never saw a Bible as a Catholic, so that's a crazy statement to make. I haven't had one percentage, not one minute, not one minute of apprehension since March. Not a minute, not a second. Not because I'm any great spiritual giant, but I do keep my mind on God a lot. And I got a verse that says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. So I don't get nervous about this stuff. And these girls, guess what happens? Clicking along, now they're in their 20s, late 20s, preacher. Now they're in their 30s. Watch it now. No husbands. Remember Mrs. Thurston Howell III, glasses on the stick kind of people, all the gossip stuff. Who these two old gals aren't getting married over there? Hey, clicking along. Now they're in their 40s, no husbands. Now they're getting ready to pass out of childbearing years. You know what the little gossip is all about. Then they're getting into their 50s, a couple unclaimed blessings, right? You know how stupid the world is. Bob Jones Sr. used to say, you and God make a majority. Who, who cares what anybody thinks as long as you and God knows the truth? And guess what? Then round three of snickering comes up. Now all these big realtors are wanting to buy that island from those girls just like their daddy wanted to develop it. But you know what's funny thing about the girls? Not only do they love God, but they love America too. And they want to give it to West Point because they know how strategic it is to West Point. But they can't because their father's estate still got a lot of debt connected to it. And it says, you know, West Point can't afford to take the gift because somehow they'd get caught with the debt, right? So they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. They can't give it to West Point because West Point can't afford to take it with the debt that comes with it. But they won't sell it to those realtors that would make them independently wealthy. And so now they're laughed at you, nuts, no no husbands, no kids, and now you could be rich and you're not going to get rich. Guess what happened? If you hang in there long enough, the Lord will take care of you. Preacher, when they're up in their 70s or 80s, I forget. Oh, did I tell you there's a whole book written about these two gals? You can buy it at the West Point bookstore. That's where I learned it. Some wealthy Christian woman finds out about their weird dilemma. And God just leads her right along their path. You know how that works. And preacher, they, this woman dumps tons of money into their daddy's estate, getting it up in the black. And those gals take their little pens out and put West Point in their will, the Constitution Island. And they both die up in their 80s. One was almost in their 90s. Anna and Susan Warner. And so what? When they died, take a guess where they wound up getting buried. Mm-hmm. And that same guy that'll take you to Marcus over there 
and tell you he's number one grave uniqueness. Only American buried here died under a foreign flag. These are the only non-military related civilians buried in this hallowed military cemetery, which is 100 years older than Arlington Cemetery. So that's a cool story, Brother Grady, but why did you end your 18,000-hour writing project with that story? Why end it with that? That's the last thing in the book because you're never going to believe who they are. See, I'm done with this. That guide at West Point, you know what he'll tell you? He'll tell you that, and the book will tell you, that although all the gossip people making fun of those ladies, there were dozens and hundreds of West Point cadets that had a completely different opinion of those gals. And you know what? They had a uh, tradition at West Point. These are the future generals and colonels and majors and captains of our military in our greatest years. You know what they would do on Sundays? The Christian cadets at West Point would get in little boats and row out to Constitution Island to spend the afternoon with those two unclaimed blessings, those two old biddies. They wanted to have lunch with them, tea as a minimum, they said, but always Bible studies. You know why? Because... They come from all these cadets, come from all different parts of the country, but when they wound up over there on Sunday afternoons, preacher, they said they had a camaraderie with themselves because they couldn't wait to see Anna, the younger sister of the two. Because when they were all little kids growing up, they used to sing these words, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Anna B. Warner. She never had any of her physical children. She just had millions of spiritual children. How many of you grew up singing Jesus loves me? May I see your hand? Wait a minute. Watch this one. How many of you grew up singing Jesus Loves Me before you ever sang Amazing Grace? There's your spiritual mama right there. And she's buried right there at West Point. The last thing I wrote in my book, the last sentence I wrote in my book is this. If you had the book written about Mickey Marcus, Cast the Giant Shadow, remember? You have the book in your hand? This is what it says up on the cover to get you to buy the book. This is the story of the man who died to save Jerusalem. A bit of trucks, the caravan. You know what I said in my book? The one buried over there died to save Jerusalem. Brother Ricky, the one buried over here, wrote about the one who died to save Mickey Marcus. And the whole world. And aren't you glad that when you die, you're going to go where those girls are and not where that great Jewish patriot is probably. Maybe, maybe you haven't had that bad a day. The yogurt cone machine broke at McDonald's. Maybe there's rough th rougher things than that in life. Praise the Lord, preacher. Come ahead. Jesus loves me. Thank you for being such a good audience tonight.